Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this episode, I am once again joined by my sister, Kay Kellum, and we're going to be doing another movie discussion. How are you doing tonight? I am doing very good. I enjoyed yeah. this movie a great deal. Why don't we tell the people what movie it is? Because I always consider the title of the movie a spoiler. No, I'm kidding. In this case, it, it, it's both a spoiler and a, a little bit of a misnomer almost. It's it's X-Men First Class. Now, we've already talked about uh, X-Men Days of Future Past. We have. So, since I had seen this before and you hadn't, I suspect part of our discussion of, of First Class is going to be you asking, well, what was going on in Days of Future Past? So we're going to have spoilers for both movies and maybe the other X-Men movies and who knows what else. So if you're worried about spoilers, go watch some movies and stuff and then, then join us afterwards. This was the fourth X-Men movie and it was a prequel where it basically goes back to the early days of Charles Xavier and uh, the formation of the X-Men, really. Well, and I liked the fact that I'd been warned it went back to the 60s, but the fact that it went really back to the 40s and laid a foundation to me was very nice. It's interesting that they chose to go that far back in time and really kind of stay true to, I mean, the X-Men were originally created in the 60s and were characters of the 60s. Therefore, giving certain characters a background in World War II and the, the Nazi concentration camps and all that stuff makes sense. But and, and it's still that way in the comics. I mean, that's that's a key part of Magneto's past, but the difference is how old is Magneto in the comics these days, and they've got kind of a rolling timeline, and few of the characters in the Marvel comics that were World War II-era characters can still be World War II-era characters and still around active. True. I can easily see that. I mean, Captain America obviously put him to sleep in the ice for a while, time jump, you can get away with it. Thor, he's an Asgardian, not that he was a big player in the, the, the World War II era, but still. Well, and then there's Wolverine, of course. Of course. But keeping the timeline that way was very interesting uh, when they jumped to the 70s and Days of Future Past. Doing it as a period piece, I think, is a very interesting choice and, a, a, I think, a good choice. I mean, it sets it apart from a lot of the other stuff going on these days. Uh, in terms of movies and what. Well, and talking about it being a period piece and comparing it to Days of Future Past, in Days of Future Past, I loved how they set the period both with the vehicles and the wardrobe and the music. And to me, there was a little of that in first class, but it wasn't as pronounced and it wasn't as, I want to say, eloquently done. There was some of it, but you're right. It was... And maybe it's just that the 70s are a bit more stylized or a bit more pronounced or more, oh my God, that's the 70s, uh, than the 60s. I mean, 60s has its own sense of style and there was a little bit of that. There were a few places where it's like, okay, we got the 60s music and, and whatnot. I can only think of one song that called out to me as, oh yeah, that was the music of the 60s. When they went into the casino? That sounds about right, yeah. That's about what I was thinking, too. That was the one that came to my mind. There were a lot of other parts of this that were just set 
in whatever day it was and not in a particular decade. Yeah, whereas in Days of Future Past, they had the lava lamp and the lapels and just all these tiny little touches throughout that just kept, I don't want to say harping or reminding you that it was the 70s, but it was never far from your mind. Whereas there were times in this one where if we hadn't been the Cuban Missile Crisis, it could have been almost any decade to me. Well, it's funny because with First Class, the story was so rooted in that time, that specific time, whereas the story of Days of Future Past was not so rooted in 1973 in the same way of the the Cuban Missile Crisis, that sort of a thing with First Class. Yet you're right, the the wardrobe, the props, the the visual design of Days of Future Past really clearly the 70s throughout. The environment was that world, and I never doubted for a second when I was. Whereas in this one, there were times where I honestly almost forgot I was watching a period piece, and not because I was so enmeshed in the period. Playing devil's advocate here for a moment, you could argue that in first class they did such a smooth and invisible job of enmeshing you and in, 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 in immersing you in the 60s. But flip side, we're in like 2014 right now. That was the 60s. It should have looked a little alien. It should have. I mean, there was one moment where they had a a very classically 60s television that they had that they were watching with the, you know, it was longer front to back than it was side to side because of all the tubes in the television when they're watching Kennedy make an announcement. And all I thought was, yep, that's an old fashioned TV, not a this is definitely the 60s. I didn't even, I mean, it's yes, they're watching TV. I didn't even notice the depth or anything of the sort. And for that time frame, it should have been a much more major centerpiece of the room, again, for the era. Then they carried it in and set it down on a coffee table, which was very much a Xavier was a very wealthy man and could afford the toys of the time. Did they even have those toys at the time? They did. Okay. I will trust your knowledge on the history there. It would have been very expensive, don't get me wrong, and very hard to come by, but yes, they did. Right, right. It's interesting that for first class, I mean, who the original X-Men are, people are going to answer differently based on how they first encountered the X-Men. If they think the X-Men were originated from the Fox cartoon in the 90s, they're going to say, well, it's these characters. If they know the comics, they're going to say, well, it was Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Angel, and Iceman, and Professor X. If they're with the movies, they're going to say, no, no, it's Storm, it's Wolverine, it's, you know, Jean Grey, you know. And I would like to thank Wolverine for making a cameo, and uh, our older mystique, if you will, Rebecca Romaine, had a beautifully done cameo. A cameo that lasted all of, like, 15 seconds or whatever of that, if that, and... Uh, I like when they do that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, a nice touch. It was cool of her to, to do that, for them to bring her in to do that. Uh, same with Wolverine. It ties the movies together. It shows, um, in, in, in the case of Mystique, she'd kind of already p- picked what her future self would look like. Yeah. You know, it's it, again, she doesn't really age. Uh, they, they kind of talk about that in the film. But the characters they pick for this first class of mutants, very diverse group. Uh, You've got Beast, who was one of the original, original X-Men. And in this film, we see him going from his original look to the blue fur look under similar-ish circumstances. Um, The specifics, I mean, uh, uh, self-experimentation was part of the comics part, 
I don't believe Mystique played into it at all. Certainly the specifics of where he was at at the time it was not the same. But, but bringing him in as, again, for the movie version now, who are the original X-Men? Is it the original from the 2000 or is this supersede that, which it kind of does, kind of doesn't? Well, and there again, you have almost two different generations of movie viewers. Yes. But we've got Beast. We've got, um, obviously, Professor X. That's a given. Magneto is, for all intents and purposes, one of the original X-Men in the movie here. And I really liked the evolution of his character, and one of the things I really enjoyed between Magneto and Professor X was the subtle use of the chessboard. When they got into their philosophical conversations and their philosophical debates on who stands where, Mm -hmm. they were playing chess. And I believe Professor X was the white pieces and Magneto the black. Yes, good call. Those two characters, though, in the comics and in the movies have always had a little bit of a Martin Luther King, Malcolm X mm. kind of dichotomy there. The, uh, the, the Martin Luther King, we can, we can peacefully coexist, we're all in this world together kind of a thing. And, and the, the almost more, not almost, but the more militant uh, uh, Malcolm X, you know, on the Magneto side of, you know, we've been wronged, we're going to make this right um, kind of approach. Well, and Xavier believes in Eric just from the moment he first sees him in the water and going after the submarine. He believes at heart this is a good man and that he can be better than he's currently being and he has something good to live for and all these wonderful things. And that's part of, I almost want to say that's part of his superpower. Well, it's interesting because technically he's a telepath, uh, uh, Professor X, but he is an empathic telepath. He feels what they feel. Well, and I think having access to their deepest memories, even the ones they've forgotten they have, would give you that that sympathy that leads to that empathy. Well, I guess that's my point, is it would be one thing to see the memories, know the events, but not feel the events, Mm -hmm. not have the emotional attachment and therefore the built-in empathy. You know, when he is showing in this movie Magneto uh, bringing one of his memories to mind of his mother, you know, we see Magneto starting to, to tear up. We see Charles starting to tear up. It's one of those where if he were emotionally detached as a telepath, he would be able to bring that, that memory to mind to Magneto, have it have relevance and, and uh, uh, bring the emotion for him, but for Charles it would do nothing. Yeah. You know, so the fact that they play him as somebody who is incredibly optimistic, hopeful, and compassionate, and... And someone who understands that your powers don't have to be driven by the anger and by those darker emotions that can power you. Right, right. But what's also interesting is how, well, they played the compassionate Charles up. They've also played up the compassionate Eric. Yes. Because Eric uh, Magneto is constantly supportive of mutants as mutants, telling Beast, no, this is you, you look great. You know, the way he's very supportive of, of Raven, Mystique, and stuff. No more hiding. Yeah. Be who you are. Well, and the fact that Beast doesn't understand at one point that Eric is genuinely happy for him when he's no longer hiding, mm-hmm. even though Beast is not intentionally no longer hiding. And that's part of why he doesn't understand this is genuine support. Well, in the whole scene with uh, with Beast and 
uh, Mystique, Raven, throughout the whole movie, there are a couple of scenes this way, where she has finally found somebody else who's got a very physical mutation, who's also hiding and therefore understands. Whereas most of the people in the film pass for human. Yeah. You know, as far as a visual accounting goes. Uh, even uh, Angel, in this case, the, the more hummingbirdish type uh, uh, version, not hummingbird. Um, that might be a good description, actually, of how they... Yeah, it's almost like butterfly wings. She's the later version of Angel from the X-Men, not the original Angel. Which, again, is ironic to have her as the first class of X-Men, because it harkens back name-wise, mm. but it's a Grant Morrison character who I think originated in 2000-ish there, but I mean, potentially since the movie started. Interesting. Although I could be wrong on that. Uh, I can't remember when every X-Men started. But the empathy between those two characters, how she gets what he's going through, but he doesn't get what she's going through. Well, and there was the scene where he brought her the serum yes. to try, and I felt sorry for him in how he felt and the emotions he was going through, but I was also very angry with him for expressing them to her instead of finding a way to support her. That was the scene in which Mystique went from who she was with Charles to who she would become with Eric. Yes. And it was a very clear that was the turning point for her and very understandably for her based on what Beast was saying. Yes. And... You know, what they did here with the Beast, going to, to Days of Future Past and stuff, uh, some some great continuity and, and uh, progression there. I like how these characters have arcs for the most part. I have to say that these are some of the fullest, most three-dimensional characters in movies right now. They've got pasts. They obviously have futures. And I'm not saying that because I've seen the next movie. I'm saying that because there's so much... In these characters, you look at them and you know they're going to move forward. They're going to do more. And you want to see what else they're going to do. Well, it's interesting because when I first saw the original X-Men movie, I walked out of there thinking, I would like to spend more time with these characters. But the movie itself didn't just bowl me over. I mean, the plot was okay. It was summer blockbustery. Uh, the second and third movies, uh, the second one, I mean, with Nightcrawler, some of the effects there just blew me away. Uh, the the scene where they break out uh, Magneto, whatever, excellent. Uh, third movie, more of the same, but it's like, again, still summer blockbuster stuff. With this movie, certainly with Days of Future Past, both of these took a more story-driven approach, a more character-driven approach, and... Just how Charles picks up girls and stuff like that, we see a few times. It builds his characters. You know, we, we get to, you know, is that, that approach really working for you? It's like, yeah, we see it doesn't a couple of times. Um, it's fun to see the characters in action and, and learn about them through what they do versus in some other movies we just kind of get told about some stuff. Yeah. Well, and in Days of Future Past, when... The guy they're after the whole movie, whose character name I can't think Trask. of. Trask. is in front of the panel, and he's quoting the paper that has been written. Yeah, when Bolivar Trask is basically saying, mutants are going to wipe us out because one, one guy wrote that, you know, Homo sapiens wiped out the Neanderthals. Yes, yes. And at the time we're sitting there watching Days of Future Past... All I could think was, I wonder if Charles Xavier wrote that. I wish they'd said as much. 
And then we get back and we do that podcast. And that's when we're discussing the fact I've clearly missed a movie. And here in this movie, sure enough, we're seeing, yes, we're seeing him write the paper and we're seeing him present the paper. And I'm going, okay, why couldn't they have just reminded us audience members in Days of Future Past? I think it was intentionally a subtle callback, just like how... In Days of Future Past, the Professor and Hank were taking stuff to suppress their mutant abilities and yeah. just live in the low life or whatever, um, whereas clearly that was all set up here. Yeah, and I guess that's that's my point. If you've seen every movie, the subtle callbacks are nice, but if you've missed one, it's a little frustrating to have to guess, is this a subtle callback or is this something they haven't played fair on. And in those cases, I now know, yes, they did play fair. To me, those are Easter eggs that if you don't get, you don't lose part, you don't get an additional layer of story, but you don't list, lose anything on the baseline. True. And it's when some of these things, it's like, well, where did that come from? Oh, yeah, that was that was established a while back, a couple of movies, a couple of, you know, in comics, a couple of issues ago, whatever, that it's like, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying this installment. Give me what I need here. And I think they've done a great job of that. And really, they've they've built up a very rich universe. They have. With the X-Men characters over the course of, of five films. So, you know, what, ten to a dozen hours-ish, give or take. I don't know how long they all last. Uh, with callbacks, with, with, you know, recurring characters, even if they've changed actors in one or two cases. Um, and I liked how a lot of the characters we saw here... Uh, specifically the ones that went off with uh, Magneto at the end, we wind up seeing signs of when, uh, in Days of Future Past, when Magneto grabs his helmet. We see one of the wings from Angel. Oh, interesting. We see the chest plate thing, uh, I think, from from Havoc. Um, So there are a couple of things there that they've at least acknowledged, you know, some characters may no longer be with us in in some ways. Well, and... In that scene where they went off with Magneto, they're standing on the beach and they're clearly in two separate groups. Those who had been with Shaw and those who had been with Xavier. And at that point, it felt rather clear to me and not just because Magneto was wearing Shaw's helmet of, you know, he came here to destroy the man who'd haunted him all these years and now he's basically going to take over his empire and move forward. A couple of things on that. It made sense for Shaw to have a telepathic shielding helmet, given he was working with Emma Frost, who was a telepath. Yes. So he was kind of a trust-no-one sort of a guy. That made sense to have it. How it worked, who knows? Who cares? Uh, As an origin for Magneto's helmet, pretty good one. Yeah, it was. Now, as for Shaw himself, um, Kevin Bacon... You know, on the one hand, is that really the kind of guy you would have figured would have been in a superhero movie or whatever? On the other hand, he did a great job. Um, and Sebastian Shaw is just a, a hallmark of the Hellfire Club, which is what a lot of this was about, if in some cases a little subtly, because we never went to a Hellfire Club mansion or whatever. We saw a thing in a casino. We got a lot of the aspects that were iconic parts of the Hellfire Club in the Claremont-era X-Men comics, yet got them in different ways. Again, they're at the Atomic Casino versus a Hellfire Club. They're on a yacht. They're on this, you know. But we get him as the Black King, although not named as such. Emma Frost, who was the White Queen. 
we get uh we get Riptide, we get uh Azel or whatever, who's Nightcrawler's father, although not really explicitly stated as such. So some of the characters, uh Azel and stuff, were much more recent additions. But again, a lot of this is taking stuff that was iconic, classic X-Men stuff and just it, it played great and they got some, some really great actors and stuff for it. They did. I mean, a lot of it was just so entertaining to watch and I almost want to say so full-bodied that you got caught up in it. Well, I think part of it is having a really rich source material to, to dive into. I mean, you go back to the early classic X-Men stuff. There's a wealth of material there that really just set the scene for the franchise. You go to the Claremont era. I mean, he wrote the stuff for just years and years and years with very, I don't want to say soap operatic, but storylines that just kept going and had a sense of scope, of, of epicness, of continuity. Uh, he built a very rich world with a lot of characters. And then you've got other runs. The um, uh, the the Grant Morrison run, of course, where we get Angel uh, the, that we see in the movie. Um, you've got decades and decades of stuff to draw on, and they're kind of picking and choosing from a lot of it. Again, Beast from the early stuff, uh, the Angel from the the Grant Morrison run, Darwin from kind of the uh, the lost class or whatever that was inserted into the comics. He was well used, and I. I want to say I liked every scene with him. Another good choice for actor, um, he, I don't say stole the scenes he was in, but he was very effective in them. He was one that, that if he had gotten more screen time, I certainly wouldn't have objected, but I don't know that he had to. You know, it's one of those that if he were to come back, I'd be happy with that. He was a character who, without us being told and without him being trained as the others were... He understood what being a hero was. He was the most natural hero of the bunch, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other ones of the group was Banshee. It was the kid who could scream. Who was one of the new X-Men. So one of the major turning points in the X-Men franchise is it went from the early run with the main couple, uh, the, main, the original five. They added in, uh, for various points, Mimic, um, who I don't think we... Uh, we may have seen in X-Men 3. Uh, but also uh, Havoc, who we got here, uh, Polaris, who had magnetic powers, um, and Quicksilver and such. Uh, but then the X-Men went into reruns in the comics for a while, and when it came back, um, one of the big changes they made after a bit was the all-new X-Men, where they bring in Thunderbird, uh, who was uh, the older brother of Warpath from Days of Future Past, uh, Banshee, who we get here, Colossus, who's one of the main... Uh, x-men over the years that we've got in both days of future past and in i think x3 in a small role nightcrawler um but a lot of wolverine a lot of the the uh, storm some of the iconic x-men over the years so the fact that this team pulled one from there one from the original one from the more current and stuff um and was kind of rounded out by uh by mystique and, and magneto you know made for almost a, a cross time selection but it's the first class, which, again, kind of ironic. Yeah. But it works. Well, and I thought that Eric and Xavier really balanced each other as leaders and mentors for this group. And I think they were surprised how well they worked together 
but they were good partners in that respect. The entire X-Men movie franchise is almost the, I want to say, dysfunctional team-up of those two. Because sometimes they're very clearly at opposite ends of the chessboard, uh, physically and metaphorically. Other times they are, you know, uh, in lockstep, side-by-side as brothers. And seeing their growth, their arc, and how, particularly at this point, they could play against future expectations. Everyone knows Professor X is going to be bald, he's going to be crippled, he's going to be, you know, this, that, and the other... Magneto's going to go on to do this, that, and the other. This is all before that, so they can set that up. They can foreshadow that. They can they can tease that, don't mess with the hair kind of lines. Yes. Um, and I think that gives the, 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 the writers of the movie, the, the director, the, the actors, a lot to play with. Well, and establishing why the mansion has the underground area. And establishing how uh, Professor X's machine was built by Hank and why. Mm -hmm. And really establishing Hank's credentials was very nice. Getting the Blackbird, getting the suits, getting the... I mean, they they gave a lot of things, almost just throwaway lines. But it worked, it played. And at some point, and maybe the next movie would be it, because that may be set in the, the 80s, it would be fun to see how... They take the mansion we got in Days of Future Past that we originally get here, and it starts to become the X-Men mansion, the building of the Danger Room, some of the other stuff that we see that it obviously didn't have from day one. Yeah. You know, getting some of that built up or whatever. Um, I like how, again, they've, they've built a very rich universe here. It's It's got a couple of gaps here and there, a couple of internal inconsistencies. Any movie franchise... Any comic book franchise will, but none to the point where I'm like, hey, wait a sec, you know. Oh, agreed. But I think a lot of the things that I would normally stumble over in something like this, I overlook and I forgive because of things like coming back to time again, what great leader Xavier is and how much I enjoy him jogging with Hank and expressing his confidence and his faith in him and his kind of being the group shrink. The and group shrink in that, that oh, it wasn't a montage, but where we see him hands-on, face-to-face, one-on-one training all the different X-Men. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, Hank, we got to do this. Okay, Havoc, let's go with this, you know, and, and giving them... I have faith in you. Guiding each of them to find their inner strengths and... Being the motivational coach, having the faith, but also being the professor. Yes. Because in the later movies, he's the headmaster. He's more of an academic. Here, they're finding their way. It's like, no, no, we can do this. Let's figure out how, and I'll, 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 I'm there by your side. You know, he's, he makes a good leader that way. He's a member of the team at that point. Well, and in this movie, you see the person that would inspire in the next movie, Wolverine, to come back and have such faith in him. Yeah. You see the person who Wolverine would turn to and say, I may not be able to do for you what you did for me, but look into my head and find it. Well, most of the X-Men in the other movies have that kind of relationship and respect for Charles. But this was really one of the few times we see 
him having that kind of one-on-one stuff. We saw a little with, with Wolverine and maybe a little here and there throughout the movies. But this was, again, one where it's like, okay, we got to train, and he's he's he is the professor. Yeah. You know, we, we certainly got a lot of the academic stuff from the opening, I think, of the first movie where he's giving a lecture to in this movie where he's writing his thesis and stuff like that. Um, I, I like how they are able to remain true to the source material while heavily adapting and changing it, too. You know, I don't think they've ever lost sight. I think this is one of the franchises where not only have they not lost sight, they've got the clearest grasp on the core of the X-Men property. Now, whether it was originally meant to be there or not is irrelevant, but it is about a, a disenfranchised subset of, of humanity. Now, it's an allegory for race relations, for, you know, uh, any sort of discriminatory behavior or whatever. Oh, um, there's definitely a message of accepting yourself, mm-hmm. of anti-bullying. There are all kinds of great messages within these movies, and I love seeing that on screen. There's just so much wonderful messages and material in here that... Any teenager who goes into this movie, whether or not they realize it, is absorbing that and coming out with such positive stuff, even while watching two enemies turn together in a unified attack. Well, the fact that they're able to do the uh, don't be intolerant, respect one another, and just be yourself, be who you are, and that's cool for everybody without being preachy, without being um, kind of overdone on that, and treating it as much as a physical aspect as a, as, a, as a philosophical aspect, and really showing in this case there are legitimate reasons to dislike, hate, and fear mutants. I mean, they're incredibly dangerous in this, this movie world. Um, they don't necessarily all mean to be that way, but I can see where a lot of people would say it's, it's too risky, let's not have that. And one of my disappointments with the comics at times is it almost boils down to gang warfare, mutant-on-mutant hatred. And it's like, you know, I'm not saying I want to go back to mutants being hated by humanity and that's all those stories are about. But it's nice to have something where there's the potential for a deeper message, something where it's not just you wronged me, I hate you, you hate me, kind of back and forth. Well, and... It was interesting towards the very end where Eric and Xavier were talking and saying they do believe in the same things, but not going about them the same ways. They have similar goals, but different beliefs. Well, actually, not even sure that would be an accurate statement. They are both troubled by the same problems. They see the same mistreatment of mutants and have a dislike of that, but they have very different approaches as to what to do about it and what the end goal should be, you know. And you were saying how Magneto essentially took over Shaw's position. He kind of did. You know, wipe out the humans, subjugate them, and be in charge was almost his take. And he's wavered on that both in the comics and the movies and stuff, whereas that was never once Charles's plan. Peaceful coexistence and, and to mutual benefit was always his goal. Well, and when you consider Magneto's background, that he went through the concentration camps, his concerns and fears are based on reality and in that sense, very valid. The first thing they do is identify us. The second thing they do is round us up. The third thing they do is experiment us. And then guess what happens? Yeah. And 
I think it would be impossible to dissuade Magneto of that opinion because of his experience. And that's what makes him such a great character. Knowing that about him now gives an understanding to why he does the things he does, where he comes from, and why he's of such a different belief and opinion than Xavier, who, rough life, this is where you grew up. Yeah, you, you grew up on a mansion. You had it tough, kid. One of the things I'm really enjoying about the Magneto comic book series right now is he's taking a very proactive and aggressive stance towards mutant rights and protecting those in need. And it comes down to the whole never again aspect of here is a guy who, who like you said, lived through the, the Nazi treatment of the Jews and stuff. He's seeing history potentially repeat itself uh, against mutants, some of which have very harmless powers. But, ooh, they're mutants. And he'll have none of that. Yeah. And the character may go to extremes both in the comics and the movies, but he's doing it from a place in which he can legitimately think he is a hero or the hero of the piece. Well, and I liked when he was pointing out, I've had enough of people who just followed orders. Yeah. Another callback to having survived the Nazis. And personally, I really enjoyed his little trip down to Argentina. Well, speaking of the, the guys in just following orders, one of the things I noticed about this film, specifically when we got to the Bay of Pigs and see some of the guys in the, the, the U.S. boats, is how many uh, familiar actors, character actors and stuff we got in what were some fairly minorish roles. You know, we got Michael Ironside as the captain of, of the main boat of the fleet that we're following. Uh, his number two guy or whatever was uh, the guy um, from uh, Chicago PD. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget that actor's name. Um, Jason Begg, I believe. I believe so. Uh, there were one or two others that were familiar faces. One of the current leads on Night Shift, which just got picked up for a second season. Uh, yeah. James Remar was one of the guys in, uh, I think, the Pentagon. Oh, we got to do this. We're going to do this kind of stuff. Having some people who are... Ray Wise had Ray two White. or three lines. Having some strong actors in, I don't want to say minor roles, but not even, I mean, they were minor roles. They were supporting roles, but they were key roles. Having people that are familiar faces, faces of authority, you know, whatever, that help round out the world versus this is a, well, we're just, we need a captain of the boat, just go hire an extra kind of a thing. No, no, they, they get some good people. Yeah. You know, and there were one or two places, particularly with Michael Ironside, where he's seeing what's happening on the beach with Magneto and the X-Men and all that, and realizing this is going to be a problem if we're not careful. Well, when he sees Magneto taking control of everything that both navies have just launched on the beach and turning it back on the ships... And I liked that they cut to both the U.S. captain and the Russian captain. I liked how they did that a number of times and showed that there were parallels, uh, parallel aspects. Yes. Both guys didn't want to start the war. Both of them realized those mutants were outgunned. Yes. You know, that the, 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 the mutants are, I don't want to say the enemy, but if they chose to be, would be a really hard one to defeat. Yeah. Um. The Again, that goes back to getting some really good actors and giving them really good material to work with. And I think that all goes back to having 
directors and writers of the movies who really like and understand the root material and having such rich uh, backstory and history and characters from the comics. And using what works, I don't say abandoning what doesn't, but ignoring what's irrelevant. Yeah. There was no sign in this movie that uh, Havoc is supposed to be the the older brother of, of Cyclops, how they got their origin, why they can't control their powers and all any of that stuff. It's not relevant. Um, but it's something that, you know, in the next movie, we do see Havoc again. We do see, you know, some of these characters and sometimes in just minor ways. But again, goes back towards in five films, they've built up a very rich narrative universe. Well, and I thought this film was very well written from the perspective of it just felt like very genuine, real dialogue. There were no you know, give it the corny drum roll and call it part of a Vegas showroom act, but dump bump lines. There weren't any soundbite movie cliche lines. Exactly. You know, and Days of Future Past had some of those quotable, very elegant lines, and that wasn't in this either. It was just all very natural flowing lines. They take the unbelievable and make it very believable. Yes. And seeing where certain characters go at certain times. Again, the when Magneto kind of hits that turning, not Magneto, Mystique hits that turning point, it makes sense. Magneto doing what he's doing based on the background that shows, it makes sense. The characters all have their, their own internal logic. Yes. And even if they're all at odds with one another, they're consistent within each of them, and it makes for a fun movie. Well, and they had several characters who had thought they were the only ones. And when Eric points out to them, not Eric, sorry, Xavier, you aren't alone. And for that matter, I liked it when they first met Angel. And she's saying, you know, it'll cost double there are two of you. And they're saying, no, we thought it was more of a, we'll show you ours, you show us yours. Well, that's the thing about any seriously repressed subset of society. They feel shamed and, and alone because they can't share who they are. You know, the fact that mutants, if they were to be found out, would be considered freaks and potentially shot on sight. I could see why they're reluctant to come out of the shadows and stuff. Oh, definitely. Anything where there is a huge stigma around whatever. Well, and the fact that this haven, I guess I would call it, that Xavier offers in his school, it's the opposite of an internment camp and yet a similar setting. You're segregated out there, et cetera, et cetera, but, but on your terms, not their terms. It's a safe sanctuary. It's a place you've chosen to go and collect yourselves among others who understand. Well, they've played with that concept in the comics from time to time, be it at the X-Men mansion, at the, uh, the Utopia Island in San Francisco where the X-Men were based at one point, or wherever. It's do we gather all the mutants? As mutants, do we all gather up where we're a single target that could be wiped out? Do we not? If we're trying to integrate with society, why are we holding ourselves off to the side? There's a huge dichotomy there. Well, and I can see why they would call it utopia. Because being among an entire population who understands yeah, and who has something in common with you, and like when the first class 
is together and waiting for Eric and Xavier to return. And they're comparing notes and, you know, show me yours, I'll show you mine yet again and stuff. They're, they're so relaxed. There's no alcohol, but they're like they're drunk at a party. They can be themselves for the first times. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there's something very powerful in that. Totally. Totally. You've, it, it comes down to you need to be reasonably okay with who you are as a person. You know, for whatever reasons. I mean, it's ironic that this is the sort of discussion coming out of a talk about a movie based on a comic book property because it wasn't that long ago, 20, 30 years, where if an adult were to say, yeah, I read comics, people would be like, really, what's wrong with you? Yeah. And I'm not going to say we're totally out of that, but comics are now a widely accepted part of the culture of America and through movies like this, The Avengers, whatever. But there was a time where a lot of, of you know, myself and, and other comic book fans, you felt you kind of had to hide that. That wasn't socially acceptable. Ten years ago when I told people, yeah, I go to San Diego Comic-Con every year, I got strange looks. Now when I tell people, yeah, I go to San Diego Comic-Con every year, really, I saw a thing about that on, and they list whatever TV network, cable channel, whatever, and they want to hear more about it. Oh, I heard Hugh Jackman shows up. I heard whatever actor shows well, up. And I don't want to compare being a comic book reader to being a part of a, a, a repressed portion of society. It's very different than what African Americans have gone through, uh, Hispanic people, uh, gays, you know, whatever subset you want. There have been some real hardships for them, but it does give me a little bit of, of hope for our society that any subset can become accepted. If any one can, then there's hope for all of them to get to that point. And I think we're making strides just as a culture that way. It was a form of geekdom that was vastly misunderstood. It was the epitome of get a life. Well, in the span of a generation, we've gone from you're smart, so you're geek, so that's bad, to I don't say geeks have inherited the earth, but technology is part of our culture. Geekdom is part of our culture. It is accepted. It is not frowned upon. It may still get a little ribbing here and there. I mean, I guarantee you between now and Comic-Con, I will have somebody ask me what I'm going to dress up as for Comic-Con. Yeah. And some of these are people I've worked with for a good couple of years. It's like, you know I'm not going to do that. Well, one year at Comic-Con, on whim, I just threw on a shirt. I go over to Comic-Con and somebody asks me, what character is that? I don't think I've read that comic book. I looked out the shirt. I was wearing a shirt for the name of a boat I'd sailed on called the Swiss Sapphire. But it had a name sounding enough like... And it amused me vastly that that sounded superhero enough that somebody thought it must be a comic book character. Flip side of that, I worked with somebody in San Diego who, uh, she was in the finance group, one day came to work with a shirt that was uh, like a, a sweater or whatever that had kind of uh, across uh, the shoulders and up red and the rest black or something. It looked just enough like a next generation uniform and somebody in, in technology mentioned that she never wore it again. Yeah. It's like, no, not a geek. I get it, whatever. But we're at a stage now where we can have both movies that are, are allegories towards these sorts of things with X-Men and whatnot in other movies that actually deal with it head on. Um, and I think that's a, a good thing for our culture. And that's 
to me, one of the, the wins for X-Men is it's able to tell entertaining stories, give people some food for thought in subtle ways, sometimes major ways others. Um, and I think this particular one with the aspect of, of mutants literally, as we're getting to a point where the concept of genetic engineering is coming up and things of that sort, may actually become a, a real relevant not a thing. Not that I expect babies to grow up and shoot lasers out of their eyes or something like that, but... No, but if we're ch approaching a point where people can choose the properties or genetic traits their children have, or look at it from another perspective, if there are countries that mandate you can only have one child, and people are making conscious choices about... I only want that child to be male yeah. or other things of that nature, then these are currently relevant concerns. Well, in whether it's by science, by other natural mechanisms, it's kind of a eugenics thing in some way, shape, or form, and that's almost what the X-Men are all about in some respects. Um, again, I don't expect anyone to, to start you know, having kids where they grow wings or can control magnetism or read minds or whatever, but... We'll at least have had food for thought if, if such a day comes. So all in all, I thought this was a fun film. I thought it was a good way to reposition uh, the franchise, taking it back in time, going for earlier things. I love how Days of Future Past blended the two casts. In this, at least with, with Mystique, kind of hinted at it definitely being in the same timeline. Well, and Hugh Jackman. And Hugh Jackman, you're right. That was a brief scene, but it was beautifully done. The reaction shots all around after his, uh, I believe, one line of dialogue. It was a nice acknowledgement as to why wasn't he a member and does he, you know, all that stuff. It was, yes. it was fun. Um, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to X-Men Apocalypse, which will be the next one, I believe set in the 80s. Well, and this one was very well paced, as was Days of Future Past. And I I like the fact that despite how long these movies are, they're they're flowing nicely. They're not short movies, but they do not feel long. Exactly. And there is a real art to telling a movie that is well over two hours without at some point there being a lull in the movie or it's just, wow, this, this has been going on for a while. There's some, yeah. I, there are one or two that have been really long I've walked out of thinking, wow, it's, it's over already. You know, Apollo 13 is the one I'm thinking. But this was another one where, again, it's like a, a two-hour, 15-minute movie. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not short, um, but it flows well. It's paced well, and it, it, it's even. It, it, it starts out, it goes, and it doesn't have peaks and valleys of, wow, that was exciting. Okay, we got to wait for the next excitement. Oh, there it is. You know, it was, it was solid. Well, and since we have mentioned all the other ones that we've watched in 3D, we watched this one on the projector at home off the DVD since I had missed it in the theater. Uh, just basic 2D. And honestly, I didn't feel like I was lacking something or missing seeing it in 3D, which I did kind of wonder since I so enjoyed Days of Future Past in 3D. I will say that if this were available on Blu-ray in 3D, and it may or may not be, I don't know, I would consider getting it. I mean, I could see where some of the scenes could be fun with that kind of stuff. But I like how many movies these days are doing 3D as an immersion technique, not as a gimmick. Yeah. Um, but I thought this was immersive enough 
because of the the depth of the characters, the solidity of the plot. Well, and I thought the effects were nicely done, like with the submarine coming out of the yacht, though that was a very big submarine to come out of such a small yacht. Uh, It was not a small yacht. Well, compared to the submarine, I'll put it that way. And I liked when the submarine crashed, how nicely all of that was done. I thought that was very well, I was going to say filmed, but we'll... All in all, the effects were really good, but this was not one of the ones where I felt there was one character that was so brilliantly done that it's like, wow. No, I was a little confused by, I'll call him Tornado Man, since I'm not sure what his character name was. I believe that's Riptide, uh, but I would have, if they had said his name was Cyclone, I said I'd have believed that. He he was the, the most obscure of the bunch, in my opinion. I would have to go look up uh, if he's really been anything of note. I believe he was a villain of the X-Men from... I want to say when they first brought X-Factor, when it was the original X-Men, but I could be wrong. He probably predates that, but he's not a major character. He was one of those that I was surprised they chose him versus uh, one or two of the other um, Hellfire Club members. There was one who had, like, gravity powers mm. that I think would have been a good choice. Well, and I... Uh... I really liked the effects they did with Raven. Not in terms of they were just blow you away, but in terms of they used them nicely several times mm-hmm. in the scenes. Like when they were trying to convince the CIA mutants really existed. They were smooth effects there, and it never felt like, okay, cut, replace the actress sort of a deal. It was, yeah. Yeah, well, and script-wise, they were always just used appropriately. Well, but I guess going to my point of how there was no blow-away special effects, it's not like some of the other films where we had uh, Nightcrawler uh, attacking in the White House, where it was a set piece of one character just really going through. True. Or like the beginning of um, Days of Future Past with Blink and, and the other characters there. This was one where the powers and the effects were used as part of the story for the most part, and not let's go have a set piece for this character. There was no gratuitous use of any of it. It was just all very natural. Well, and again, I'm, I'm not against gratuitous oh, use yeah. of special well, effects and powers in a movie. It's uh, If yeah. it's well done, I'm all for it. But I, I like the fact they didn't need to do that, and it shows a strength in the writing that they didn't need to do that. Now, one thing that we... Uh, because we were in the privacy of John's home and I could talk during the movie without annoying anyone other than John. And she does talk through movies, I, uh, not nonstop, but enough. And sometimes it's fun. Uh, who's this? And I can kind of, and I can interject, this is from the comics, this is not, this is how this is in the comics, yeah. And this is why he wishes some listener who actually read comic books was the one watching movies with him. But I digress. Uh, sometimes it's fun to discuss this with people who don't. Just to get that different vantage point. One of the things I enjoy talking about comics with Drew is sometimes we'll read comics he's totally unfamiliar with. I'm bringing baggage in. I'm going to have a different experience than he will. Likewise, for these movies, I know these X-Men characters from the comics. You don't. And therefore, things that play well for me may not for you, and vice versa, if somebody goes against type. Well, one of the things that I talked about throughout the movie was the German coin from the concentration camp Mm -hmm. that was used later. And at the time when he was the 12-year-old boy or however old he was, uh, Eric, 
and he couldn't move the coin on the desk. And we bantered about theories. Was he not angry enough? Or was the coin a slug with not enough metal for him to be able to move it? I, I don't buy into that theory. And the reason I don't buy into that theory is at the end, he's handed the coin. My belief is he kept that coin. And that's what I wanted to know. Was it the same coin later or did he have a metal one made that was identical to it? I think it was the exact same coin. He, the, the character of Magneto strikes me as um, OCD-ish enough. What I wish they had done, and it would have taken one or two shots, is back in the concentration camp, show us if the coin ever moved on the desk before it was handed to him. After he crushed the bell... During the temper tantrum, if you will, show us if the coin was one of the thousands of pieces of metal that moved. I am fairly certain it was not, but we'd have to rewatch it to see when Schmidt grabbed it to hand it to him. I got the impression that... He moved everything but that, which is why it seemed like it was a it, slug with not enough metal. He didn't move the desk. He didn't move a lot of other things that had metal. I thought it was a wood desk. It would have had metal nails. Well, maybe it wouldn't have had metal nails. It seems to me there would have been other metallic things in the room than just what he dealt with, but he had no finesse, no control. True. And it may have just, it was a small enough thing he couldn't grab it. Mm. Versus this huge iron gate that he first did, or the huge uh, uh, filing cabinet. Granted, yeah. the bell was not so big, but it was bigger than the coin. True. I just, it struck me as such a pivotal moment in that character's life he would have hung on to that coin well he did until it served its purpose and he could pay it back yeah and the other thing that horrified me was Xavier staying in let's, the mine let's talk about that when when uh Sebastian Shaw meets his end uh, the coin gets driven through his brain by Magneto while Professor X effect uh, not effectively totally has the guy paralyzed and frozen. Yeah, that, in every sense, that horrified me because, A, Xavier was party to what happened. The minute Magneto put on the helmet and blocked Xavier out, he should have basically said, I gotta let the other guy go because Magneto's gonna kill him. Yeah. And Magneto made no secret of what he planned to do when he had the opportunity. It was tantamount to Xavier saying, that the guy both deserved to die and well, and killing him himself. He was a party to it, and it was almost as if, because of a guilty conscience, he felt the need to suffer alongside the man he was helping kill by staying in his mind throughout. I, I dislike the choice of having Xavier stay there. Um, and I wondered what harm does it do to Xavier to be in his mind as he dies? I've got to think that's one of the things that led to the um, the the place Xavier was at in the next movie. And that makes perfect sense. But because Xavier, in the beginning of the next movie, is by comparison to where he was, say, ten minutes before the end of this movie, a broken man. Yeah. Well, mentally broken, physically not so much. He was walking, whereas yes, the end of yes, this, yes, not he so was much. physically a. Slightly healing but man. They, they addressed all that in the yes, yes. and stuff. That was fine. Uh, again, this was another fun movie. I enjoyed it when I first watched it. Well worth watching a second time. I think it does hold up. Um, and we're probably going to do more of these these episodes talking about uh, various movies and stuff like that. We may at some point, or not at some point, but 
over the course of time, uh, go through a lot of the other uh, Marvel movies and such. I would enjoy doing that, especially ones I haven't watched in quite a while. And I believe there are some I just, like this one, somehow missed. Well, and no reason to limit it just to the Marvel ones. There's the Superman movies, the Batman movies. Uh, and I know I've missed some of each of those. Yeah. So if there are any movies out there, uh, you listeners uh, would like to know our thoughts about whatever, by all means, post on the forum, send me an email, give us some suggestions. These are episodes that, frankly, are fairly easy to record, easy to edit, um, a little time-consuming because it takes a couple hours to watch the movie, a little time afterwards to record and edit and stuff, but there's something that also uh, require zero preparation for. It's basically, you know, do we want to do it? Okay, what movie? Pop the thing in, watch it, record. And I mean, it's a little more than that, but it, it's not much. Well, and we're still planning and hoping to do an episode on Arrow. We've given some discussion to doing an episode on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a few other TV shows we're interested in doing. Uh, Continuum Season 3 has aired, and we plan to do an episode on that. So if there are any TV shows that people want to mention that we've watched or are watching, we'll consider doing that as well. Yeah, TV shows are fun to do. They're a little more challenging just because yes. of the amount of, of material involved. I can usually watch a movie, hang on to most of it in my mind long enough to record on it. Uh, TV shows these days have a lot more moving parts and threads than they used to. Yeah, they do. Um, Definite pro and con, in my opinion, on that aspect. Well, and it doesn't make sense to me in most cases to do an epi uh, a podcast episode per episode of the TV show. I mean, other people do that sort of a thing. That's great. That's fine. Haven't ruled that out, but I would need to have a show that I am just so uh, passionate about that I will keep up to date on it and get the episodes out on, you know what I mean? It's, it's worth having that discussion. Yeah. Well, and the, I felt I had enough to contribute to an understanding of in that respect. Yeah. But with the upcoming TV season having Gotham, uh, Arrow, Flash, um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., iZombie, I'm not sure I'm going to watch or not, um, but in Constantine, I mean, I could see possibly doing uh, episodes on a routine basis on Gotham or The Flash, potentially Gotham more likely. Well, and that might be a question to toss out to listeners is, if not weekly, then would they want a every four episodes roundup or something of that nature for people who marathon? Even if we were to record weekly, the episodes would not go up weekly just because there are enough other things on the podcast. Exactly. But it's stuff that the reality is uh, I love comics, certainly not going to step away from any of those episodes. But more people know about these characters through movies, through television shows, through video games, that uh, giving a little more coverage of those things, uh, more so the movies and television, because I don't really play video games, uh, just makes a lot of sense. Well, and I guess my final question to you for this podcast would be, is there any trade paperback, is there any comic book that you think someone who enjoyed First Class would enjoy reading? Going back to the people like these characters, is this a good on-ramp to a specific, like Days of Future Past, had a trade paperback it lined up with? The difference between this one and a lot of the other X-Men movies, Days of Future Past was based on uh, a couple of particular issues of X-Men. This was inspired by some of the Hellfire Club, some of the stuff, some of that stuff, but none 
no particular couple of issues are so much the basis for this for me to say, oh yeah, if you like this, you ought to go read the original story here because it, it, it's not that way. Yeah. Um, again, they're mixing and mashing a lot of things. One of the, uh, the X, I think it was X-Men 3 was based on God Love Man Kills, uh, by, by Chris Claremont. So again, another, you like it, go to this. This one didn't have that. Um, okay. I'm pretty sure one of the guys who wrote this script has a young adult's novel out that, uh, he was inspired to write because he has a son and he wanted him to better understand, as I recall, uh, kids with autism and Asperger's. And I might encourage you to put up the link to that just for anybody who has kids that they want to get hooked on reading and who like the style this guy has for telling stories as understanding of characters. Along those lines, I do believe there's a comic that's coming out or has come out recently kind of raising awareness on kids on the autistic spectrum and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, if you can find a link to the the novel or whatever, I'll, I'll try to include that in the show notes. Yeah, I've started reading the book and it was very good. It was I really enjoyed both his writing style and just the understanding he was offering. Yeah. Anything else or does that pretty much do it for this episode? I think that does it for this episode. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.